0: Thank you for listening to the Restoration City Church podcast. For more information about our church or to support us financially, please visit rtc.church. If you've been around the church for a while, you've no doubt heard what we call the Great Commission, right? Go forth and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that Christ Jesus has commanded. Even if you are new to church, chances are you've probably heard something about this in one form or fashion over your life. As Christians, we know that we're called to play a role in this mission, that it's not just about our growth, our personal relationship with God, that we're supposed to be disciples that then go and make disciples. But oftentimes, when we think about where we start, how we fit into this grander every tribe, tongue, and nation movement, it can be overwhelming. The thought of cold turkey inviting our neighbor, our coworker, the barista at the coffee shop down the road to come to church with us can feel a little paralyzing at times. Or we feel like We have to do something so radical with our lives to be considered worthy of God's love or to be of any use to his kingdom. Quit our job, become a full-time missionary, move to a remote country that's only accessible by alpaca, right? There's a little bit of this in my story. I up and moved to China in a matter of a three-week period about a decade ago. And it wasn't the only reason that I moved to China. God was doing a lot of other very big things in my heart and in my life. But there were threads of that in my heart as well. I felt like I needed to do do something big to be worthy of serving God. Maybe you do gravitate towards the paralysis side of things. Not really sure how to go about starting to share your faith with other believers. Oftentimes, this means that we just simply don't, right? And that's not meant to condemn or shame anybody. That's just the reality that we tend to live in. We take the silent approach, the idea that if we live good enough lives, we are moral Christians, our unbelieving neighbors, coworkers, friends will just kind of catch Jesus by being around us, right? This kind of backward sickness. They caught Jesus by interacting with us. Or if you've heard the common uh, saying, preach Jesus, preach the gospel wherever you go, use words when necessary. This idea that we can kind of just live a good Christian life, and through that, people are going to come to know and love. Jesus. It's a phrase that's common associated with Francis of Assisi, the founder of the Franciscan Order of Monks. It's full of really great intentions. It's cute. It makes a good coffee mug. There's just two problems with it. One, he never said it. It actually goes wildly against most of what he taught. Two, it's just plain not biblical. Scripture is clear that the gospel goes forth because God's followers Speak it. But what if God intended all of his followers, whether you're a pastor at a local church, a full-time overseas missionary, or you're right here in Northern Virginia working what I think is the hardest job in the whole world, you're a stay-at-home mom. Maybe you're a high-ranking government official, a full-time student, or a teacher. What if he intended for all of us to live out his mission of mercy and compassion, welcoming others in to his glorious love in far more practical, ordinary ways than we tend to think about? What if he intended for it all to start by his followers simply opening their front door, inviting somebody over to share a meal, and creating a space where relational roots can start to form? That's what we started talking about last week, right? This idea that God, in his amazing love, extended hospitality to humanity, creation, Adam and Eve, all the way to today. That has been the story. And that he has invited us as his people to give that out to one another, right? We build one another up through acts of hospitality. But ultimately, it's not designed to be a members-only privilege, Genuine gratitude towards God's amazing hospitality means we extend it to everybody we encounter, whether inside the church or outside of the church. And I truly believe that that is the means by which God desires to fill fill his ministry of mercy and compassion to the world through his church that we heard Alan speak on a couple weeks ago. In fact, if we actually look at the word hospitality used in the Bible, in the original language, in the Greek, it's phyloxenia. It's a compound word. The first word, philia, it means an affectionate, friendly love, wanting the best for somebody else. Same word that was used to come up with the name for Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. The second word is xenos. It simply means stranger or enemy. Literally translated, hospitality means the love and care for strangers and even our enemies in some contexts. It's the opposite of this uh, word that kind of grew in popularity. It was all over the news, actually, while I was living in China. Xenophobia, the fear or hatred of foreigners and strangers, almost overnight There was this dispute between China and Japan over this tiny little island in the South China Sea and a culture that I was enamored by anything foreign, especially Western, all of a sudden was incredibly skeptical of anything that was not Chinese. Now, this isn't a political statement. I'm not saying who was right, who was wrong, just sharing the facts and my observations of how people handled this situation. But it got so bad that one day my boss actually wouldn't let me walk home the few short blocks from where I worked. She was afraid for my safety because there were mobs of college students from the local university roaming the streets, vandalizing anything and everything they could find that was foreign, especially if it was Japanese. Storefronts smashed in, windows broken, graffiti across the sides of cars. I actually watched a mob of about 20 students flip a Japanese-made car upside down in the few short blocks it took us to drive home just because it was foreign. Keep in mind, this was owned by a Chinese citizen. It just happened to be a foreign car. It makes absolutely no sense. And yet, those are the threads of skepticism, of hatred, of distrust we find in our hearts, naturally as human beings. Hospitality is the polar opposite. It says, move towards those who look, act, think differently than you. Move towards those that you might actually consider your enemies. And that by moving towards them, loving them, showing them care, you're actually going to soften their hearts as well. That's what we're going to be digging into today. Through today's passage, that one I just read for you, we see the incredible mission of God in extraordinary fashion, and yet it's actually carried out in incredibly ordinary ways. So let's dig back into it. Luke 19, I'm going to read it again for us. He entered Jericho and was passing through. There was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich, understatement. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but he was not able to because of the crowd. Since he was a short man, so running ahead, he climbed up a sycamore tree to see Jesus. If you grew up in the church, I dare you not to sing the song in your head today. Good luck. Since he was about to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, because today it is necessary for me to stay at your house. So he quickly came down and welcomed him joyfully. All who saw it began to complain. He's gone to stay with a sinful man. But Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, I'll give half of my possessions to the poor, Lord. And if I have extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. Today's salvation has come to this house, Jesus told him, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. A little bit of quick context for us. Jesus is on the road heading towards Jerusalem. It's just a day or so before what we call Palm Sunday, his triumphal entry into the city where one week later he would be betrayed, arrested, and crucified, and three days later rise from the dead. Just A little bit before in Luke's gospel, it says that Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem or determined to go to Jerusalem. He reached the point in his ministry where he knew it was time to go and do what he came to do, to die for the sins of the world. So he set it in his sights. That is his biggest aim right now. And he encounters this man named Zacchaeus. We don't know a lot about him. It says he's a chief tax collector. Think priest and chief priest. He's pretty high in rank in the tax collector scheme. And it says he's very rich. We're talking like millionaire of his day. The guy was filthy rich. But why is that important? Well, we've talked recently about the fact that the tax collectors were Jewish people that Rome hired to enact tax on the Jewish people. Not the best gig in the world, but it gets worse than that. These taxes are anywhere around 50 or so percent of what a Jewish person makes. The tax collectors were allowed to kind of add whatever they wanted on top of it whenever they wanted to add on top of it, but it gets worse than that. See, the Jewish people are longing for their Messiah to return, to finally overthrow Rome or any other dominant power in the world Babylon, Assyria, Egypt, everyone else we've seen throughout the biblical narrative and finally restore God's people as the chosen people. So when you chose to be a tax collector for Rome, you were worse than the enemy you were seen as actively opposing the return or the coming of God's Messiah. In the eyes of your fellow Jewish citizens, you ceased to be Jewish and therefore ceased to be worthy of the name Child of God. That's who we're dealing with right here. Now, this Zacchaeus guy, he's trying to see Jesus. Now, this is more than just general curiosity. He's no doubt heard about the signs and wonders that God has performed through Jesus. He's no doubt heard about Jesus' teaching, but there's something deeper here. There's something stirring in Zacchaeus' heart. It says says that he ran ahead and climbed the sycamore tree just so that he could see Jesus, let alone speak with him or spend time with him. Culturally, these are two acts that Jewish men never did. You do not run as a Jewish man. It's incredibly shameful. You certainly don't climb up a tree, especially a man like Zacchaeus with the finances that he has. He's got a lackey to run ahead for him. He's got some servant to climb up a tree and look at this man passing by. He doesn't care how shameful these acts are. He doesn't care what anybody thinks about him. He knows he needs to set his eyes upon this Jesus man. And nothing's going to get in his way to do it. And then enters Jesus... Right, Both fully God and fully man. So he's walking by and he looks up and sees Zacchaeus in a tree. There's been no introduction and yet he calls him by name. Zacchaeus, come down for I must stay at your house today. There's an urgency here. I love how simple that is though. I'm urgent to have dinner with you. What's more, I love that he actually invited himself over to Zacchaeus' house. Try that one next time. You want to go have dinner with somebody, just invite him over, yourself over to their house. Last week, when we were talking about receiving the hospitality of God, we talked about how it's this internal movement of gratitude in our hearts that actually then Allows us, gives us the ability to turn and extend hospitality towards others? Look at Zacchaeus' response here. Verse 8: But Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, I'll give you half of my possessions, sorry, half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have extorted anything from anyone, I'll pay back four times as much. All Jesus did is said, hey, I want to have dinner at your place. Can you come down? And that's all it took. A simple act of welcome for this man to turn from the wicked ways of his past and respond in repentance. He sought to make restitution. He wanted to pay back the people he had extorted. But he went above and beyond, four times as much. That's wild. This guy made it rain with money. And then he gave away half his possessions to the poor. People who really weren't even involved in the situation, he was so moved, he wanted to offer the same thing to other people. It's amazing. But then, the real kicker, verse 10, we see the extraordinary mission of God. The entire biblical narrative reduced down to one short phrase: "Phrase, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost." Son of Man—it's a name given to the Messiah by the prophet Daniel back in the Old Testament—refers only to Jesus. He said, "The whole reason He came, the whole reason." We have the Bible so that God could seek and save those who were far from him. And that's all of us, right? We've all been far from God. And there are billions of people on this planet that are still far from God. The whole reason he came was to draw them near, to welcome them in, to extend the mercy and the compassion of God the Father. And he did so through the most ordinary of ways. Let's share a meal, have a conversation, and see where it goes. And remember, he's in a hurry, so to speak, to get to Jerusalem. That is the last item on his agenda. But he didn't see Zacchaeus as an interruption to that mission. In fact, Zacchaeus actually embodies his entire mission. In Hebrew, Zacchaeus actually means clean or pure. That doesn't sound anything like the life he had lived. And yet, Jesus, on the way to Jerusalem, on the way to the cross, is determined to change that reality. He says, People, you say this man is unworthy of love, he is the worst of sinners not even worthy of being called a member of the family of God because of the life that he has lived. But I say he is wholly worthy of being welcomed in. He is completely worthy of love and care because he is far off. Jesus says, I came to seek and to save the lost, not those who are near, to heal the wounded and the broken, not the healthy and the well. I came to make men like Zacchaeus clean and live up to the name that I have given them. That is what our hospitality can do for one another, but also for those outside of this room, for your neighbor, your coworker, that barista down the road. So many people are hungry just to be welcomed in, to be shown that they are worthy of being loved, specifically because they were made in the image of God. We're going to look at one more passage It's gonna highlight this idea that the Son of Man did come to seek and to save the lost. But it's also gonna zoom in on that really ordinary method of fulfilling it, simply eating and drinking, enjoying a meal with other people. So turn a little bit further back in Luke's gospel, chapter seven, and we're gonna start in verse 31 this time. This is Jesus speaking. He says, To what then should I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to each other. We played the flute for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a lament, but you didn't weep. For John the Baptist did not come eating bread or drinking wine. And you say, he has a demon. A son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, Yet wisdom is vindicated by all her children. There's a lot going on in this passage and I realize we're jumping in the middle, but the short of the long is Jesus is talking to the people around him, especially the Pharisees. And he's saying, you fickle, fickle people. My cousin, John the Baptist, came preaching the truth to you. And he lived a life of abstinence in the wilderness. And you call him demon-possessed. I came teaching the exact same message of truth with a full glass of wine and a slice of pie in my hand, and you still rejected me. You called me a drunkard, a glutton, a friend of the worst of society. See, here's the whole point of what he's saying. It didn't matter who shared the message or how they shared it. Their problem was the message itself. What's the message? That the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Everybody. The mission of Jesus is not intended to only benefit descendants of Abraham. God chose Abraham thousands of years ago to be the father of his chosen people but their chosenness had absolutely nothing to do with any kind of internal, innate ability, strength, or superiority over any other nation. Actually, quite the opposite. God chose Abraham out of the tiniest, weakest nation in the entire world, Scripture says. And this is a theme we see him repeat over and over again throughout Scripture, using the uneducated the poor, the outcast, the least, su- least likely to succeed to accomplish his mission. This was radically infuriating to the Pharisees. This is the message that they struggled to understand, that it wasn't just about the Jewish people, that the mission was to include everybody into the picture. This is why they grumbled and complained when Jesus went to dine with Zacchaeus. Because he's a sinner. He's the worst of the worst. The Messiah is supposed to come and care for us the best. They lost sight of the fact that salvation is not about us. It's about God and his glory. They looked inward. When we're called to continually look outward. The message that the Pharisees struggled with is the same message that we tend to struggle with. It just looks and feels a little different at times. All the way throughout the entire four gospel accounts in the Bible, we see Jesus eating and drinking with people who didn't, think like him, didn't act like him, didn't live up to the standards that God had set for his people. He willingly welcomed them in. He didn't turn his back when they approached him on the street. He didn't ignore them because he didn't have time to meet the tangible need right in front of them. He made space for those that were far off. In fact, he's eating and, drinking, eating and drinking with people so frequently that one author put it in his book, which has an incredible title and a concept, Eating Your Way Through Luke's Gospel. I think all of our small groups should, should do that study. He says, in Luke's Gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or on his way from a meal. He's constantly eating and drinking with people one of the most basic human acts. And he's using that as the means to fulfill the most extraordinary mission in human history. His very first public ministry, or excuse me, miracle. Remember what it was? Water into wine. He's at a wedding, and he turns roughly 180 gallons worth of water into wine. That's like 1,000 bottles of wine. The Bible's also pretty clear it wasn't two buck chuck. It was the good stuff. You don't get called a glutton and a drunkard by being a vegan teetotaler. It just doesn't happen, right? It's no offense to the vegans in the room. Jesus wasn't a drunkard. He wasn't a glutton. He lived a perfect sinless life. But as we read about him in the Bible, it's pretty clear He wasn't shy about sharing a meal either. In fact, it was central to the entire way that he did ministry. Now, take these two things. The extraordinary mission of God lived out in very ordinary methods, eating and drinking, to seek and save the lost. And we get a pretty subversive model for ministry. It's completely countercultural to what the Jewish people of his day thought it's pretty countercultural to what we tend to think about today as well and that's the way god chose to bring the world back to himself but it doesn't come naturally to us as humans right we are just as prone as the pharisees were in jesus day to turn our noses up our, at our neighbors to look down on other people for so many reasons, their skin color, their income bracket or employment status, their political affiliation, their views on gender and marriage, their current or past sins, which is why we need to be reminded, just as much as the Pharisees needed to be reminded that God, in his human form, Came to seek and to save the lost, us. And he did so one meal, one conversation at a time. Now, right here today, northern Virginia, D.C., southern Maryland, we're living in more and more of a post-Christian culture. All of the studies show that society is becoming less and less tolerant of the Christian faith let alone welcoming it. And that kind of an environment, why would we expect our non-Christian neighbors to want to come to church on their day off from work when they could be sleeping in, traveling, or sipping mimosas at the pool? I'd love to be doing those things. They're great. And that's a reality. Most Christians don't even want To go to church. Barna, one of the leading Christian research firms, has recently found that only 41% of Jesus-professing Christians in America go to church at least once a week. 41%. We dial that up to twice a month or more, and we're only looking at 20% of all believers in the U.S. And it's a statistic, so it's not perfect. And it's certainly not meant to make anybody feel bad The point is, if we're not coming to church, if we don't even want to be here, why would we expect our non-Christian coworkers and neighbors to want to come when we invite them cold turkey either? We also tend towards arguing as the people of God rather than embracing people as the people of God rants on social media, feeling the need to defend every minute detail of why we live the way that we live. Now, apologetics is a beautiful thing. We should not neglect the truth in any way. But I just have a hard time believing that in the culture we live in, arguing about something is going to make that big of a difference. But you know what? Everybody I've pretty much ever met, is a fan of? Dinner. I think, instead of arguing about things, instead of avoiding people, isolating ourselves in our small little circles, I think we should be inviting people to dinner, extending the welcome of God the Father, especially to those we disagree with especially to those who look different than us or profess a different faith because people need to experience the gospel lived out, not just spoken out of frustration. Two authors that co-wrote a book called The Simplest Way to Change the World, which in my honest opinion is hospitality. That is the simplest way to change the world. They said, the secret weapon for the gospel advancement is hospitality. The world needs more ordinary Christians opening up their ordinary lives so others can see what life in light of the gospel is like. If we want to move in a positive way in this increasingly post-Christian culture, we need something more winsome than anger, more powerful than despair, and more hopeful than escapism. We need love and grace and truth, and we need open homes with tables full of food. It's so simple. It's not easy. That's not what I'm saying. But it's such a simple concept. Now, the reality of life, especially here in the Northern Virginia DC area, is we will always have an excuse to make, right? But if we're gonna be a people that live out the welcome of Jesus Christ, we've gotta stop making them. We've got to stop looking at our homes as our own personal refuge from the world. I get it, life is busy. We're all tired and overextended. But the physical place you live was never intended by the Creator that made you to be a place for you to isolate from the rest of humanity. In fact, everything we have, including the life in our bodies, is an extension of his hospitality that he intends us to turn around and give out to other people. That house that you live in, often we say, oh, but it's a mess. I can't have people over. There's stuff all over the place. Who cares? My house is a mess too, and I bet your neighbors is as well. Hospitality is about welcoming people into real life. That means real messes, laundry on the floor and dishes on the counter. You come over to my house, you're probably gonna find a poopy diaper in the corner as well. And that's okay. You'd be surprised at the hope you offer other people when you welcome them in with things not being perfect. The whole goal is to be present, not to be perfect, right? That gives other people permission to be present, not perfect as well. And then we say, oh, but I can't cook. Awesome, learn. It's 2023, YouTube, a billion cooking blogs out there, or better yet, invite a Christian friend over and cook together for the person that's coming over. Worst case scenario, you burn the casserole, chuck it in the trash, order a pizza and laugh about it. We're not after nine course meals. It's not about showing off your culinary skills. It's about meeting a basic human need a meal, creating an environment for conversation to take place. And like Jesus did, see what happens. But the kids, am I right? The kids, that's the real issue here. Except that hospitality isn't just for grown-ups either. What better way to train up our kids in the ways that they should go than to be planting the seeds that hospitality, having people over on random days of the week that aren't on the calendar is absolutely normal. It's so good for the singles in our communities to experience a meal with a family. It's so good for other parents to watch you as a parent Love your kids. Your kids are going to throw a fit. It's going to happen. They're going to lose it, and that's okay. You're probably not even going to respond well in the moment. They're going to see that, but they're also going to see the love and the grace and the forgiveness that you extend afterward, something that most people outside of this type of environment never experience, so many excuses. House is too small. I hope you have space for one more human being in your room. I have to believe you have space for one more human being in your room because hospitality to one is just as powerful as hospitality to 100. We could spend all day talking about the excuses, right? There's always going to be one. But we're called to be people who fight back against them. There's always gonna be a cost to the hospitality that we extend. Like I said, this is a simple concept. It is not easy. Week over week over week, talking about hospitality within the church, I invite my community group over to my house. And they know this, this is no surprise to them. Week over week over week, I don't wanna do it. I don't want them in my house at the end of my workday. But they come. They come. And we laugh and we cry and we open God's word and we pray and they leave. And I'm filled with life. There's always gonna be a cost. Your time, your energy, your money, your clean carpet. But responding from a heart of gratitude to the love, the compassion, the mercy that God has extended to us has a really amazing way of making those costs feel worth it. Rosaria Butterfield, on the subject of costs with hospitality. She's somewhat of an expert on this. She wrote a book called um, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. It's a pretty provocative title. First time I read it about four years ago, it, it changed me. I, I immediately went out and had 10 copies of my house key made and started handing them out to people. I don't think they've been used all that much, which is why we're doing this, but it's a pretty provocative concept, right? Right? She says, there's no way to love the stranger without losing skin in the game. That's the way of Jesus, right? He came, he lived, he died to welcome us in. You may get a stand on your carpet, and I'm sorry if I'm the one that caused that. You may have to make sacrifices in other areas to be able to make a meal for two more people. but Christ is saying, it's worth it, and then some. I've just about gone up to our time here today, but I want to close with one last thought. A couple months ago, some of the leaders here at RCC gathered together for dinner. One, so we could practice some of this hospitality amongst ourselves, be encouraging one another, talking about what we're experiencing at the church and just sowing relational seeds. But as we're talking, we also went around the table and answered the simple question, what do you most hope to see God do at RCC? And let me tell you, there were some incredible visions and dreams shared. And I'm already starting to see some of those happen. But as people are sharing, I could not help but think about the simple reality That I don't remember the last time we had somebody visit our church who had never stepped foot in a church before. I know it's happened, but I can't remember when that was. Maybe it's today, and if that's so, praise God, I'm so glad you're here. But that reality doesn't sit well in my heart. I hope it doesn't sit well in yours either. I long for the day when we are welcoming people on a regular basis who have never been to a church before, that all of this is brand new. Everything I said earlier about our unsaved neighbors not wanting to be here still stands. But if we're living this out, if we're welcoming others in around our dinner table, on our couch, out back on the patio, if we're doing that, I have to believe we're gonna start seeing people show up. And people are gonna start asking questions. And just like I ended with last week, they may conclude at the very end these people are a bunch of weirdos. And that's okay. They get to make that choice. But if we're not seeking them out, if we're not moving towards them regardless of what they look like, act like, think like, will never have that opportunity. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, and he did so in an incredibly ordinary way. He chose to eat and drink, share a meal, have a conversation. That is our practical takeaway today. Go forth and eat. Pour yourself a glass of wine or grab your favorite soda, cook a meal or order wings, whatever it is. But share that meal with somebody who doesn't know Jesus, not as a project to fix, but as a real human being to get to know, to experience, and see what God does. Let's pray. God, we need you. Oh, how we need you. Every hour, every moment, we need you. And Lord, I confess in my heart my tendency to isolate, to look inward when I'm tired, when I'm weary, when I feel like I just need a break. Thank you for welcoming us with open arms, for looking at me, a sinner, and saying, I must come to your house today. God, we want to be that kind of people. We want to be the kind of people that seek out our neighbors, the ones that live right next door to us and the ones that don't. We know that we can't do this on our own. You have to be the one to work in our hearts. So would you do that? Would you turn us into a people that welcomes the stranger, that seeks out the marginalized and the lost? Would you build your church? one meal, one conversation at a time. For your incredible glory, God, and for the good of your people, that we would have the opportunity to see you moving amongst us. In Jesus' name, amen.